Well, do keep that passage open as we look at Mark's Gospel. We continue our series, finding out about Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray before we look again at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that in your mercy you speak to us and that you speak to us of the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we look now at him again in your word, that you would open our eyes that we may see him and what he asks of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Merv Hughes was one of the characters of Australian cricket in the 1980s. He was a big fast bowler with a big moustache and a big pot belly. And like a, a lot of big fast bowlers, Merv Hughes wasn't exactly popular with opposing batsmen. Uh, but he was famous for being popular with the Australian crowds. In fact, when Merv used to uh, field on the boundaries, he would warm up for when he would next come on to bowl. And he would stretch over like this and like that, and the crowd behind him would all be mimicking him and doing the same thing. Uh, and it became kind of like a cult thing that the Australian crowds would do. Wherever he went in this country, uh, as Merv bent this way or that, the crowd would follow. Uh, mimicking Merv became one of the favourite pastimes of the Aussie crowds. And mimicking Merv became even something that fell into advertising because uh, Ford at one stage put out some TV ads uh, for their Ford dealerships. And um, the, the theme of the ads were, you'd be popular too if you gave these great deals. And one of the ads featured a Ford dealer at the cricket who just in the break in play started stretching and everyone else behind him started stretching too. Uh, and he turns around and finds the crowd mimicking him, just like they did with Merv Hughes. So, of course, now you have this situation where Ford is mimicking the people who are mimicking Merv Hughes. Uh, now, of course, the ad's a ridiculous ad because car dealers in Australia are about as popular as politicians, and I can't see any Aussie cricket crowd ever doing something like that, but... It just shows, even years and years after Merv ceased playing, just how popular he was. Everyone was still, even in the ad world, mimicking Merv Hughes. I wonder what it is to mimic Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus, in other words? There are, at last count, well over a billion people around the world who say they are followers of Jesus. Are all of them really followers of Jesus? What is it that makes a true follower of Jesus? We know, thanks to the ad campaigns, that Merv Hughes calls his followers to buy from their local metal landmate. What does Jesus call his followers to do? Well, let's go to God's Word and find out. Have a look again at verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. 
repent and believe the good news. These are the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark. And the first thing that Jesus asks his followers to do is to repent. To repent or literally to turn is a basic requirement for the followers of Jesus. Uh, good old-fashioned repentance. And what does it mean to repent? Well, it just means to stop living my way and to start living God's way. It means turning away from a life of disobedience of what God says in his word to a life where you're trying to obey God's word. And of course, yes, that person may still sin. In fact, they will. But the focus of their life has changed. And there has been a 180-degree change of heart. Now they want to live for God and live under his rule as opposed to live in rebellion against God and live without reference to his rule. The second thing that Jesus requires of his followers is to believe the good news. The good news, or the gospel, if you want to put it that way, is the message that salvation is available through Jesus' death as a ransom for sin. And so the follower of Jesus trusts or believes in Jesus' death to save them from their sins, the consequence of their sin as well, God's just judgment. Sin, uh, sorry, Jesus calls his followers to trust him and his death for their salvation. What does this mean? What does this look like? What is, what is, what's this trust like? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that there is a man in a desert who comes across an old hand-worked water pump and a bottle of water. And the man will die of thirst if he doesn't drink. But there is a note attached to the old pump. And the note says, pour water down pump to operate. Hmm. What's the man to do? He can drink the bottle of water and maybe make it back to civilization, Or he can trust the message about the pump and pour the water down it. What's the man to do? I wonder what you would do. Let's get interactive here. Who would drink the water? Put your hand up if you drink the water. Yeah, a few, there's a couple of hands. Good, good, yep. Uh, who would trust the message and... Pour the water down the pump. Okay. Everyone's looking to see what is the... And now I'm taking it the rest of you who didn't put your hands up are the people who would die of thirst before they make the decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, someone's even owning that. Yeah, well done. Good work. The man, for the sake of the story, trusts the message, takes the bottle of water and pours it into the pump. He entrusts his life to the message. And if the message is a lie or a hoax, then he dies. That's how serious it is. It's all or nothing here, and he works the handle of the pump. And at first, nothing happens. Then a trickle comes out. Then all of a sudden, the pump gushes water. The man is saved, 
And what happened was the water from the pump, from the bottle, swelled the inner workings of the old pump, making the pump work. Now the man has an unlimited supply of water. He's entrusted his life to the message, and because of that, he is saved. Now, friends, let me just obviously say, this is not engineering advice. And if you are stuck in the middle of a desert and you come across this exact scenario, I'm not promising that it's going to work. So just be careful. Okay, this is an illustration in a sermon, right? But... It's an illustration of the type of trust that Jesus calls his followers to have. They trust the message of Jesus with their very life, their eternity, both in this world but also in the next world. Trusting in Jesus' words on how to live life and trusting his death for forgiveness and therefore entry into heaven. So although I don't know much about engineering, I do know that the message of Jesus is worth trusting with your life. The second thing that Jesus requires of his followers is to believe the good news, to trust it with their lives. Now those of you who are astute theological observers will possibly be asking yourself the question, Wait a second, Mark 1.15 says that Jesus calls his followers to repent and believe the good news. But I thought we were saved by faith alone. I mean, isn't that what we had the Reformation about? How do we reconcile this passage in Mark with passages like Ephesians 2 verse 8? Uh, and if you're struggling to recall Ephesians 2 verse 8, it goes like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are saved, it says there, by grace through faith, which is God's gift. And that's consistent with the believing the good news part of Mark 1.15. But what about the repentance? That doesn't seem to fit, does it? But that's because we haven't finished what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2. Because there it says in verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And now it becomes clearer when we read the whole thing. Good works or repentance are a result of faith. Faith comes first then good works or repentance. If you think about the man at the pump again, he trusted the message and then performed the action of pouring the water into the pump. Faith first, then his actions followed naturally. Romans 1.5 calls this the, the obedience that comes from faith. Faith first, then works follow naturally. Now, just imagine for a moment that uh, the man had, by the pump, read the message that said, pour water down, pump to operate, and said, I believe it, and then drank the water. What does that tell us? 
Well, it tells us that he didn't really believe the message, even though he said he believed it. And that shows you another thing about the relationship between faith in Jesus and works. That is, as James 2.17 puts it, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That is, faith without works isn't really saving faith. Or it's the wrong kind of faith. For friends, what we do, or at least try to do, shows us what we really believe. Or if I flip it around the other way, what we believe will eventually show somehow in what we're trying to do. Faith first, then works follow naturally, but if the works don't come, it isn't really the faith that saves. There was a wise man who once, wise man who once said, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always has good works following along behind it. So in Mark 1.15, when Jesus calls people to repent and believe the good news, he's looking for the whole deal. He's looking for the faith that leads to repentance, to a changed life. He's not interested in the kind of faith that doesn't flow from genuine belief in the good news of Jesus and that doesn't affect a person's life. So Jesus calls on his followers to repent and believe. Trust in the gospel, the good news, and have that real change of life that flows from that trust. You might wonder at this stage, well, when Jesus calls people to follow him, to repent and believe, who follows? Uh, it's obvious that who follows Merv Hughes. I mean, cricket fans follow Merv Hughes. You can still go on a tour with Merv these days, I think. People follow him across to England, of all places, to watch cricket. But who follows Jesus? Who hears his call and responds? Well, we see in the passage. Have a look at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The first thing that you see when you read this passage is the kind of people who follow Jesus are really ordinary people. They're not rulers or the great, the super educated of their time. They are fishermen. Ordinary people are the kind of people that follow Jesus. 
people like you and me. And so, friends, when we read something like that, we ought not to be discouraged or worried when powerful and famous people fail to follow Jesus. We shouldn't fret when the fabulously wealthy or beautiful people or those who have so many million followers on Instagram ignore Jesus and have nothing to do with him. Ordinary people like you and me are what Jesus started with and he still chooses us today. But there's another characteristic of those who follow Jesus. And this one's more critical. Those who follow Jesus are committed. If you look at verse 18, they left their nets. That's their job, their livelihood. They left what they live on. And in verse 20, they leave their father and their family business. And if you were to look at, Le- at Levi in chapter 2, verse 14, which we read earlier, he leaves his lucrative job. It takes commitment to follow Jesus. Following him may well mean that you lose your job. Or it may mean the family business Or it may mean even your family. It might not mean any of those things, but it could. It takes commitment to follow Jesus. There is always a price to pay for following Jesus. And the price is more than shopping at your local metal land mate. Those who follow Jesus know the cost, but they gladly pay it in order to follow him. A third characteristic is there in verse chapter 2, verse 13, 15. Let's have a look. Rob, you'll be pleased to know that my thumbs aren't getting the page turn either. Thank you, thank you. Sadly, I was fumbling, so I gave it away. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A third characteristic of those who follow Jesus is that they are sinners. And by this, the Bible doesn't mean that they have sinned, though they have, because everyone's done that. What, I, what the Bible is talking about here is they are sinful and they know it. In fact, in terms of the tax collectors and sinners, they are sinful and everyone knows it. 
and points it out. But friends, one of the characteristics of people who follow Jesus is they know they need a saviour. That they are sinful and that they need forgiveness of sins. And friends, let me tell you that one of the things you notice as a minister is the hardness of good people's hearts. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it's actually something you see again and again and again. The people who are hardest to talk to about Jesus are the good, decent people of society. Those who are honest and decent and hardworking are often the hardest to talk to about Jesus. Why? Because they don't think that they need a saviour. They think they're good. And like the Pharisees in these verses, they look at Jesus with the sinners and they're not impressed. In fact, sometimes they mock. Me? Repent? But I'm good. Look at all the money I've raised for charity. Or look at all the volunteer work I've done. Or look how I've cared for my family. That's the kind of things that you see people say. They don't follow Jesus because they don't think they need to follow Jesus. And the sad reality is that hell will be filled with many fine, upstanding citizens who have contributed greatly to their families and their societies. Those who follow Jesus, though, are sinners. That is, they are sinful and they know it. And so they accept the Saviour for them. Friends, today we've seen in Mark's Gospel what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus calls his followers to repent and believe the good news. And throughout history, ordinary people who know they're sinful have put their trust in Jesus and followed, whatever the cost. But like the man who trusted at the old pump in the desert, their faith is rewarded with life. Today, Jesus calls out to you, come. Follow me. Have you followed Jesus? If you haven't, will you follow Jesus? For Jesus says to you in the words of Mark, Come, follow me. What will you believe? And what will you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that you are a good and generous God, that you sent the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to save us, to pay the penalty for our sin.
so that we don't have to pay it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as Jesus calls us to come follow him, to repent and believe the good news, that we would all choose to say yes to Jesus. That all of us here or those listening online would say, yes, I do believe. And yes, please change me and rule me, Lord Jesus. And we ask this not just so that we might be saved and enjoy eternal life in heaven with you, but also so that the name of Jesus would be honoured by more and more people. And so we ask this in his name. Amen.